You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. We have to be unpredictable. And we have to be unpredictable starting now. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. With the world community, like the US, still in shock over the election of Donald Trump, we talked to two experts on the US about the realities of Trump in power. Tom Wright is an Irish foreign policy academic based in the Washington Brookings Institution think tank, who's written about the president-elect's long-standing and remarkably consistent foreign policy positions. And I'll be talking to Graham Finlay, a political scientist in UCD, about Trump and the Republican Party, whose eclipse had been widely and wrongly predicted. Donald Trump's election to the political leadership of the US and to the role of commander-in-chief is inevitably, and unlike that of any other country's presidential election, an election which implicates all of us. The US sets the agenda on the world stage and shapes its politics decisively. It decides if there will be war or peace. In a real sense, Trump is our president too. But what does Trump's election mean, Tom? Do we know? We have some sort of an idea, um, but uh, let me just start by saying that he, Donald Trump, unlike um, unlike many sort of analysis of him, actually has a consistent worldview. I mean, there are many issues on which he doesn't know anything about and contradicts himself and has one position today and another position tomorrow. But there are a small number of things that he does believe and has believed dating back to the late 1980s. And so he comes into um, the presidency with that sort of set of visceral beliefs that have been sort of his touchstone. And, And I argue there are three of those. The first is that he is consistently critical of US alliances, um, particularly in Asia and in Europe, and has been since 1987. Um, Secondly, he's consistently critical of trade agreements and has favored using tariffs and other punitive measures to get his way in the international economy. And the third is that he's been consistently pro-authoritarianism, pro-strong men, and uh, fairly pro-Russian. And so those things, you'll be very hard pressed to find anything um, that he has said or done that really contradicts any of those three key elements. Um, so it, everything like immigration, climate, he's actually been a lot less consistent on those issues. There's there's many instances of where he said one thing and then the other. I mean, he even signed a letter calling for action on climate change about five or six years ago. Um, so those are the three things that I think are the core. They, the, those things would be hugely disruptive to global stability if he was to implement them. I mean, if he was to start a trade war, partner with Russia, and unwind America's alliances, that would be a shock unlike we've seen in many, many decades. So um, the big question is whether he will go forward with that worldview or he will somewhat moderate it um, or go to the mainstream or outsource it to the vice president or to his cabinet or to to others. But what we saw in the course of the campaign was very much a policy that that consisted really of headlines rather than any substance. And there's very, very little that I've been able to find in which he develops uh, in any kind of systemic way uh, his uh, political positions. I I was struck, uh, I came across the other day, a a policy paper on on, uh, Israel and and, uh, uh, Palestine, but it was very much an oddity, uh, unlike anything else that he was talking about. Yeah, I mean, he so he in the debates, he did constantly bring up those three issues that I that I mentioned and um, often unprompted. Um, so I think there was a sort of policy in the strategic sense in that he was 
he was often coming back to these things and saying this is what he was going to do. Um, where I where I think I agree with you though is that um, he didn't have anything resembling policy in the normal sense of the word as we understand it in a campaign. I mean, the Clinton campaign had 500 advisors, you know, a gazillion policy briefs. Um, yesterday there was meant to be 20 people that would go into every single government department to conduct the transition. All of those people would have been briefed from uh, staff that have been working on the transition for a month and a half already or two months, um, uh, preparing the groundwork for how to hit the ground running. Um, and then the president would appoint 4,000 people to senior positions in the government to implement uh, his or her uh, vision. So that's what policy normally looks like in the operational sense. He basically has no one. I mean, he has hardly anyone on the transition. They didn't think they were going to win, so they had no prep at all. There was a story yesterday that they couldn't even staff the transition, let alone staffing the the the, the government um, appointments. And the, as you said, they have no plan. I mean, the Israel-Palestine one that you mentioned, I didn't see, but you know, the, the, there's a very small number of people around Trump that are influential, and one of them is his son-in-law. Jared Kushner, who's married to Ivanka, and um, he's very focused on on Israel. And so he may very well have written that paper. He wrote the APAC speech. So, you know, you put your finger, I think, on a huge um, problem that is going to be the dominant news story of the next couple of weeks, which is, you know, are Republicans going to join his um, uh, his transition team and his government and are, will the mainstreamers sort of work for him? And thus far, the evidence is mixed. I mean, Democrats have been saying in private that they want the mainstream Republican foreign policy elite to go in because they want um, a steady hand in the tiller and to limit the amount of damage that can be done. But from the point of view of the Republicans, you know, it's sort of a lose-lose situation. If they stay out, it's a catastrophe. If they go in um, and they try to, you know, make it uh, more stable, and they failed, then they're blamed, guilt by association, and it's horrific as well. So I'd say at the moment they're really on the fence about it. And it's a very difficult choice for an individual because presumably everybody knows that when you go and work for Donald Trump, you work on his terms. You don't, you're not there to change him, to moderate him. You 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 have to do what he uh, wants you to do. Yeah. Now there's there's something I would say that having just spoken to 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 a few people on the other side of the on, on the Republican side, I mean they're very upset by this. They're high anxiety. I mean they're really torn. Um, they would prefer not to. I think many of them will not. Some of them may be persuaded. Um, in their in their cases, usually you know not a careerist thing. I mean this could actually really damage their careers in the long term. Um, the case will be that he may outsource it. There was a story in the campaign, you may remember, where Pence reportedly told someone that Trump, when he offered him the vice presidency, said he would get to run domestic and foreign policy. So that doesn't leave very much for the president. Um, but that will be in a model of chairman of the board, where Trump will be sort of chairman of the board, um, Pence will be prime minister or CEO. Um, that would probably, for many Republicans, be the best case scenario at the moment. But I don't really find it convincing because he, um, you know, he likes to impose himself on things and everything is personal to him. He's this is where I'm particularly worried about foreign policy because he's not really constrained in foreign policy. And and I think he's he's been pretty passionate about it for, for a long time. So I do worry about him. 
sort of running the show there. I wanted to come to that precisely, uh, that point uh, about the constraints that are on him. Uh, as, as you say, uh, as, as foreign policy is an area where he is relatively unconstrained. But for example, um, is it possible for a president to repudiate treaties, for example, that have been signed by his predecessor? There, there is a, a convention, certainly in, in European politics, that a government is bound by the actions of its predecessor. And, and indeed, people wouldn't sign treaties if they thought that they were subject to, to ratificate, um, you know, abandonment by successive governments. Yes, yeah, so I think it depends on the um, it depends on the treaty, but uh, but in general, no, you can't do that, of course, and and the government is bound legally um, by the the uh, preceding treaties. But the details get sort of a little worrying. So you know, take NATO. NATO Article Five is a cornerstone of of the NATO treaty, which commits the U.S. to defend NATO allies. That um, article is actually relatively ambiguous. It says. Um, that when a, a country is attacked, all other members of the alliance are required to come to their assistance in a manner as they see fit. The U.S. has always interpreted that as meaning, you know, full military commitment and war in the event of an invasion, which has been the, you know, the foundation of deterrence. Um, but, you know, there's nothing to stop someone from saying a strongly worded statement is sufficient to come to the assistance of another you know, so he could simply say, yeah, I don't consider, you know, I'm not going to go to war with Russia, you know, to defend the Baltics, or I don't consider the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea to be part of the treaty with Japan, where there's a similar provision. And there's virtually nothing that Congress can do in that in that circumstance to make him do that. I mean, Congress can sometimes stop a president from doing something, but to make him do something in the military arena that he doesn't want to do is almost impossible. It is impossible. Sorry, in terms of, of reducing the effectiveness of that threat, um, all you, he has to do in advance is to say, well, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm fully committed to it. And the ambiguity right. that we're seeing now is, is, is already having that effect, uh, increasing jitters in, in the Baltic countries, for, for example, uh, quite quite seriously. Specifically, can I ask you about the Iran nuclear deal, which which uh, he has strongly opposed? It's one of the most incompetent contracts. Forget about deals from any standpoint, whether you look at real estate, whether you look at war, whether it's one of the most incompetently drawn contracts I've ever seen. We could have had a much better deal. We could have had a much stronger deal. We should have doubled up the sanctions, negotiated for strength. We don't get anything. We're getting nothing from this deal. There are suggestions that he would like uh, to run radically alter. Is, is that technically possible? Yeah, so he's had he's had a number of positions on the Iran deal. He has said, I think, that he would repudiate it. On other occasions, he said he wouldn't repudiate it. Um, but he is opposed uh, to it. The Republicans are opposed to it, and they want to undo it. Um, but they don't actually really know what they want in the long term. They say, we want a better deal. Uh, we want a deal that sort of meets all of America's demands. But of course, in no negotiation is that possible. Um, so um, they have sort of a binary choice. Do they pull out one way or the other um, and see what happens? Um, or do they go back to the negotiating table, in which case they, they, they may be unable to get a better deal? Um, if, they, if he was to try to undo it early on, he could do it in a couple of ways. One way is just to pull out, but that would be a catastrophe because the sanction would, uh, would have collapsed and Iran would be free to pursue its nuclear program. And then 
he would be faced with a choice of to bomb or not to bomb very quickly. But the second way would be to avail of sort of a loophole in the treaty to impose very heavy sanctions on Iran for activities in Syria or elsewhere. There's been sort of a gentleman's agreement of sorts that that would not be done, uh, even though it's not addressed in the treaty. Um, but if he did that, Iran could cry foul and may and may pull away from the uh, from from the agreement. Um, but the real issue is sort of in the long term what they what the Republicans want to do on Iran, um, because the the deal is in place. The sanctions regime will collapse if the deal uh, will not be uh, put in back uh, put back if the deal um, collapses. Um, so I think they have a real dilemma there. So they're going to run up against reality pretty quickly. And tell me about the Paris Accord on on, on global warming, which again he he is opposed to this. He he made a great play during the campaign of support for the for the uh, the traditional coal coal industries. This agreement gives foreign bureaucrats control over how much our energy and how much we use right here in America. So foreign bureaucrats are going to be controlling what we're using and what we're doing on our land in our country. No way. We're going to cancel the Paris Climate Agreement. Can he repudiate it? Well, he the Paris Agreement um, was a step forward, but it did sort of leave you know, it did leave it up to the individual governments to set their own targets. Um, Obama, of course, ratified it and set targets. Um, but he could um, just by unit by domestic action um, repudiate Obama's targets and some of the measures he's taken to implement those um, and render the agreement effectively meaningless. And I think that is very, very likely to happen, unfortunately. I mean, the environment will be a huge casualty of this election. And, and you know, the fact that the U.S. is now basically going to be a rogue superpower on climate issues is is very tragic and, and, and unfortunate and I think it is, um, it, it really will be a, a major sort of problem um, and it may allow China, who was always, China was always ambiguous about um, about the climate change agreement, maybe they will sort of pull out as well. So I think it's, it's a very a major setback for climate change diplomacy. We get a sense overall of, of uh, American leadership on, on, on very major strategic uh, issues facing the global security, global economy, uh, going into into reverse, going uh, in a, in a completely different direction. Is this um, is this realistic? Is it is it campaign talk, or or do you feel that this is really we have a prospect that America is going to go into reverse? Well, you know, I've always been very optimistic about the U.S. and U.S. foreign policy and and sort of the international order, despite all of the problems and setbacks, I felt that, you know, the country was still in a pretty good position and, and that the, you know, general uh, idea of U.S. leadership was positive and sort of widely supported. But I have to be honest, I mean, I think this is the biggest crisis to face U.S. foreign policy since World War II. I mean, there, you know, we've never had a candidate before that has so forcefully denounced some of the key principles of international order. I mean, this is completely different than Bush, for instance, who was, you know, for all of the problems that people had with him, was within the mainstream of Republican Party foreign policy and, you know, was overextending the U.S. in a way. I mean, Trump really could be an isolationist president. And then, the, you know, if he was to withdraw from these alliances or, or partner with Russia or, you know, uh, unwind the global open global economy 
And then the huge question is, you know, that we'll find out is, is the international order dependent on American power or is it independent of it? I mean, can it continue? Can the good things that we like about it, global, you know, open, uh, you know, travel and, and trade and, you know, supply chains and cheap sort of goods and, uh, and peace and stability and some semblance of prosperity, um, will those things continue without U.S. sponsorship? And, you know, I hope the answer is yes. Um, and I think, you know, it's really on Europe and and uh, democracies in East Asia to step up to the to the plate and to try to to try to do more to preserve it. So there's something um, left in, in four years time um, when the next election comes around. Um, but I think there's a real risk. I mean, there's a real risk without you active U.S. support. Eastern Europe will be less stable. East Asia will be less stable. And then we don't know what happens. We don't know who takes advantage of that, what opportunistic leaders emerge. Um, you know, what happens in France next year? Um, you know, what happens in Germany? Uh, Chancellor Merkel's statement yesterday was terrific. But I mean, will she be there in a year? Um, you know, that, so all of these things are now, I think we're really in uncharted um, waters um, now with uh, what, what's happened uh, yesterday and with Brexit, of course, uh, earlier this year. Scary times. Thank you very much, Tom. You're listening to the Irish Times. Donald Trump's relationship with the Republican Party has been a troubled one. Many commentators who have spoken of how the party's capture by the far right and the Tea Party, not least in the primaries, uh, was turning it into an unelectable party, at least at national level. Its traditional leadership had lost control. The party, some said, was doomed, a process being exacerbated by Trump. But his election appears to have exploded such an analysis. The Republican Party, as well as Trump, won the election, and certainly the party held on uh, to Congress. But what happens now? Graham, the party gets a new lease of life. Will it rally to the president's program and push his legislation through? Uh, Does he become its de facto leader? That is an excellent question. I think uh, there are a set of separate questions. Uh, One, I think it will rally to his program. Uh, at least the parts of it which are lifted more or less straight from the Republicans' own legislation. So Donald Trump's policies are really an interesting mixture of things he just freelances at a rally or at his announcement. And the actual policies, insofar as they've been worked out at all, are are very often just taken from standard Republican boilerplate. I mean, whether it's getting rid of Obamacare and replacing, replacing it with health savings accounts or... Uh, the list of his Supreme Court judges, which Trump is not an expert on, so he was happy to outsource to the Republican Party or denying climate change. Um, all of these are things which the Republicans have stood for for a while. Um, it's some of his new policies, the physical barrier uh, along the Mexican border and, say, the protectionism, which is going to cause the most difficulty with the Republican Party. But uh, much of his stuff is quite standard uh, Republican fare, and that's one of the striking things. Now, the leadership has a route to Trump through Mike Pence, who started as a Tea Partier, is a Tea Partier, but also a very serious, very hardcore social conservative. And so Trump picked him partly because he was a social conservative, but partly because he was a Tea Partier who ended up in the Republican House leadership. And so he's a route back into the House leadership for Trump, which is going to be very important if anything's really going to happen. But and his as, relationship with Mitch McConnell and with Paul Ryan, the leaders of the, of the, the Republicans in, in, in Congress, is, is pretty poor. It's extremely poor. We'll see if Paul Ryan is the Speaker of the House in the next, the next House. But uh, it's very poor. And that's one reason why I think 
Donald Trump will not be the leader of the Republican Party the way that George W. Bush was the leader of the Republican Party. There's a sufficient amount of conflict between their legislative agendas and certainly their styles that's going to make it harder for the House leadership to to show the kind of discipline which the Republican Party showed during the Bush years. Uh, because just, the, you know, some of the things Trump wants, the Republican leadership is going to have a hard time swallowing. And I think the biggest thing they're going to have a hard time swallowing is paying for it. So Tom Trump's tax proposals, again, look pretty similar to uh, a Republican set of proposals. He's going to famously try to reduce the corporate tax rate to 15%. In a really interesting in interview in the Irish Times, Paul Ryan said basically the same things. They believe in tax competition, and the problem is the Democrats don't. And so, but if he brings in a radical reduction in taxes, um, the Republicans in the House will be delighted, like Paul Ryan, if, if it means they're going to shrink the government. But a lot of his proposals, like building a giant wall in Mexico, mm -hmm cost a lot of money, and they're not going to be necessarily happy to pay for it. And infrastructure spending is, is particularly key to, to his program for, for creating, creating jobs. And that's and another that, big that's factor. That's hugely expensive. And so his, his attitude to the deficit, which he has really not talked about very much and is rather dismissive of, um, although, although he, he doesn't approve of, of Clinton's approach to it, but it, it, it is going to be quite a serious problem in, in terms of agreeing a budget uh, with Congress every year. Yeah, and he's, he has famously said, I love debt. And uh, crucially, the Republicans under George W. Bush, under Reagan, under his, George W. Bush's father, actually had quite a good relationship with debt. I mean, you know, the Republicans famously wanted to cut the federal deficit. They wanted to cut spending. But in practice and in government, they have constantly borrowed tons and tons of money, far more than Democrats in office. Uh, so they may find themselves learning to love love deficit spending especially if they can blame it all on the Democrats, because, uh, and this is what we have to see. So a lot of the problems for the legislative agenda will be, how do the Democrats react to this uh, change where you've got a Republican president, House and Senate, and whether they'll be like the Republicans and, and just try and obstruct everything through filibustering, right, and show the kind of discipline which made the, the case that Obama couldn't really do much um, after he lost the, the House and, and the Senate. Uh, it's you know, it's not clear what's going to happen. But if the Democrats allow and are going to work with Trump to shape legislation rather than obstruct it, then a lot of the legislative agenda could get through. Uh, that is a very big if. Uh, I served in Washington as a correspondent for a number of years, and I remember the repeated mantra of bipartisanship that, that came from every president when they were elected and, and every leadership of Congress. And it was more observed in the uh, in the breach than than in, in anything else. Bipartisanship never happens, and it's getting worse. And it's getting worse. And one of the things, of course, which will will come up really really quite quickly is the Supreme Court issue, where Trump and the Republicans are are very much in tune, but we'd probably see the Democrats using the filibuster uh, against a Trump nomination. Well, this is going to be a sort of crisis because the Democrats chose what they called the nuclear option uh, in the last uh, session, which was because none of the Obama's judicial appointments were getting through. Vast numbers of them would be held up by the Republican filibustering. The Democrats, because it's just a change in the rules, uh, changed the rules to deny the opportunity to filibuster judicial appointments, except for the Supreme Court. Uh, and this, was, this led to outrage on the Republican side. Uh, we'll see how the Republicans are so outraged now. But um, so... If the Democrats were to filibuster uh, a judicial nominee for the Supreme Court, 
they would also be weakening one of the few sort of give and take elements of the American constitution or political practice, which is that you give a Supreme Court nominee a hearing, and if you can't find something really dreadful about them, you you have an up-down vote over whether to, to accept them. Uh, the Republicans were saying before the election when they thought they were going to lose that they were not going to allow any hearings on any nominees uh, until they had a Republican president. Uh, the Democrats, again, if they want to paint themselves as not as bad as those Republicans they were just recently denouncing, will, I, I think I hope for the good of the country, you know, retain this particular, uh, both the opportunity to filibuster and this custom of letting nominees be heard, uh, if only because um, they're hoping to get another chance at this in four years. Yes, but the, the, the real danger, of course, is that in, in relation to the Supreme Court, we are going to see a, the appointment of, of one, perhaps two, perhaps three judges uh, by uh, Trump who will change the shape of the court for generations. It, it could be 30 years before they, the Democrats get a chance. Well, the Democrats had, you know, had a chance, they thought, to yeah. cement it for generations because um, currently there's only one vacancy, and that's Antonin Scalia's. And so uh, if Trump fills that, it'll still be a, a court where you have uh, four justices on each side and Anthony Kennedy, who gets to decide what, which way, what happens. But uh, Anthony Kennedy is 80 years old uh, and, you know, as far as I can tell, is not only intends to leave the Supreme Court by one route only, which is death, but uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would like to retire. Yeah. And so if although, anything happened... much comment about that has been premised on, the, on a Democratic uh, uh, majority. Right, so she's almost certainly going to hang in for the next four years, if possible, yeah. as is Anthony Kennedy. And so, uh, but if something happens to them, uh, they, then, then you are talking about a... a a conservative Supreme Court for, for a generation. Now, Trump will play a central role in defining what it means to be a Republican in the sort of post-Reagan era, where Reagan was always the, the, the poster boy for the party. But how in tune ideologically is he with the party? Not very. Uh, I mean, again, one of the things they're going to have a hard time swallowing is his protectionism. I mean, it goes against the cozy agreement between the elites of both the Democratic and the Republican Party. Uh, and the only thing which um, made the Republicans hesitate about giving President Obama fast track access to trade agreements was the, because they didn't want to give Obama any kind of victory. Uh, but they are fully in favor, as is Mike Pence, of, uh, of free trade and, and free trade agreements. So there are going to be some ideological difficulties, but and I think they stem from their sort of three Republican parties. You know, there's the Libertarian Tea Party side, there's uh, which is sometimes combined with a socially conservative, very socially conservative uh, side based on Christian values, which and then there's the populist side, which Trump represent, which combines a lot of which has got a lot of government intervention and a lot of government action, as we were saying before. Uh, which, again, sits ill with the small government. I mean, so I often say you can have two of these three. You can be a libertarian and a small government person and a social conservative, because that doesn't cost a lot of money. You can be a social conservative and like government action, but you can't have all three. Now, who is he going to draw from from, the, 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 from Congress to put in his team? Newt Gingrich and yes. Jeff Sessions? I mean, we really don't know. Uh, I was hearing on, on the radio early that uh, hundreds and hundreds of Democrats were getting their CVs ready for, for today, just, you know, in the hopes of getting in the administration. None of the Republicans were. He doesn't seem, e even Trump's team thought he was going to lose. So I think to some extent. And so the Republican, you know, Republicans will have to 
wrap their head around the fact that they're going to be in charge now. But he probably will go to some of his most loyal surrogates, some of his more out there surrogates, you know, the, the Omarosas of this world, the people who go on, on TV and say the most outrageous things. Um, are probably not going to be given any kind of position of responsibility. He has a lot his of experienced people his around children. him. He said he wants to put his children... I mean, when they asked Trump about nominees and the kind of people he'd surround himself with as advisors and as, as administrators, he would name his children, he'd name his fellow billionaires. Um, it was not... He just doesn't have any personal connection, except for these sort of relatively recent pals he's developed in, in, in Christie and Giuliani and, and Gingrich who he'd immediately tap, you know, the way Hillary Clinton knows hundreds and hundreds of people who could all do the job. Finally, I, I wanted just to ask you about, um, there's much talk since uh, the the election about how uh, everybody thinks it's awful, but we should be reassured by the fact that as soon as he's in power, he'll have to tack to the centre, that he uh, is essentially pragmatic, that the constraints of office mean that he won't be able to do any of the things that he he, he wants to do. One of the things that isn't pulling him to the centre is is his support base in in Congress, which are Republican base is very very com conservative. But what's your in inclination about? What's your instinct saying to you about what what uh, Trump the pre Trump presidency will be like? I honestly have no idea. Having totally failed to predict the win, I'm probably going to get out of the prediction business. But it's it's really not clear. He's allegedly told the New York Times that he doesn't mean any of it, and he's not going to, you know, he's just, you know, saying this stuff to get get a, an audience and attention and support. We don't know which parts he doesn't mean. Uh, we also don't know which policies he's talking about, since he contradicts himself quite a bit. We don't even know what some of these policies are in some cases. He hasn't revealed his policy to, to attack ISIS and so forth. So we could get a pragmatic President Trump who is gotten to by the system, by the deep state and and, and the international financial markets and the realities of international politics and does basically kind of what all presidents do um, with particular interests and a particular slant coming from his support from his party and everything like that. Or, and this is something I think we should watch for in all the new populist victories, uh, which we might see. I mean, the next one might be Marine Le Pen in, in France. Is, are they going to make the calculation that they can't disappoint their base uh, so rather they'll do these quite outlandish or possibly economically destructive or, uh, you know, alliance-breaking moves with the hopes that when should a huge amount of disastrous economic results follow or um, significant alliances break down or they be frustrated in some other way, either by bad economic consequences or by all the people who are arranged against them that they can say to their supporters, look, see, the elites, the insiders, the... The opposition, however you want to characterize them, and there's some very scary characterizations out there, the globalist or global financial conspiracy, which is one of the most hateful parts of this campaign. You know, look, they're, they're behind this. You know, that's why you need to, you know, give us even more power and, and, and keep fighting, you know, uh, and your pain is proof of their perfidy. So I'm worried that you'll, all of these movements will take the second route as a way of keeping themselves in power rather than governing for the common good. And indeed, if, if you look at the, the record of people like Erdogan, uh, people like Orban, these autocrats in the same mold, they've actually moved sharply to the right uh, as they become comfortable with being in government. And, and this is probably an ominous precedent. Thank you very much, Graham. Thanks to Tom Wright and Graham Finlay and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>